morning. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning again to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to invite you to stand please with me again and we'll read our text together as we continue in our series, <clears throat> The Bible and Homosexuality. 1 Timothy 1, 8-17 is such an important text for our understanding in these things. Let's read this together in unison. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, You are the immortal, invisible, only God. And it is our desire this morning to gather around Your Word and to, to see Your glory, the glory that You have displayed through the Gospel, through Your Word, the truth that conforms our thinking to to your mind. Father, we ask that you would teach us, strengthen us, equip us to understand the things that you want us to understand so that we may humbly proclaim the gospel to other sinners. Father, may we see this time as we gather together as a time of equipping. Help us to understand that that You have given us Your Word not only for our lives to be changed and for us to trust in Christ, but so that we may, we may be equipped to communicate the same Gospel, the same Christ that we depend on to others. Father, fill us with a desire to, to be able to know the Gospel well enough to communicate it accurately as we ought to and boldly and humbly and lovingly. And use this time for that end, Father. We pray that You would be glorified. We want You to be known and loved and honored and trusted and feared. We want to call others to be changed by the Gospel so that others will worship You as well as us. Father, may we delight in Your glory and in the goodness that You have poured out upon us. We pray that You would guide us this morning and focus our minds, our hearts, deliver us from distraction, and may we, may we exalt in You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been working our way through this series on the Bible and homosexuality. And last Sunday and this Sunday, we are seeking to answer the question, how should we respond to a homosexual friend? And it's kind of the next logical step in our series because we talked about why it's important to talk about these things as the church and 
and we've talked about the biblical view and foundation of godly marriage. And then we've also talked about what the Scripture says in condemning homosexuality as a sin, like adultery or immorality or any other kind of sin that we would engage in. And so we're moving toward helping each other from God's Word to be equipped with the truths that we need to actually to communicate the Gospel in a loving, caring, bold, compassionate, clear way to someone who is enslaved to this particular sin. And really what you'll find out as we continue to, to discuss these things is that we're going to communicate the Gospel to this no matter what sin the sinner is involved with. And so I hope we can work through these things together. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed with all of the things that are involved in this process. And thinking, okay, what truths do I need to know? What, what is God's law that needs to be given? What is the Gospel that needs to be communicated? And how do I do all that with a loving, gentle, bold, and clear heart as I communicate those things? And it's, you know, I come to the conclusion that this is, this is a divine task to be able to look someone else in the eyes over an open Bible and tell them, this is what God has said. This is who God is. You need this God. There's how you have broken His law. And invite them to trust in Christ. Who is sufficient for that? What do you, what, when you see someone born again and accept the truth and, and live in a way that turns from sin and trusts in Christ, that is a work of our Creator. Speaking light into darkness. Do you, do you struggle with that? You, you find the right words to say, but then in the end, it's a work of God. Right? So may the Lord enable us. Last week, we looked at the first two and just began to talk about the first or the third, the third argument that we might be facing when witnessing to someone who is struggling with homosexual sin. And the main idea of this text that we've been looking at, it's kind of a springboard into these different ideas or arguments that we're seeking to, to speak the truth to. But first Timothy one, eight through seventeen. Would, would be summarized in some ways by saying and exhorting us to keep speaking sound doctrine that accords with the Gospel and say that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You'll notice that in this text, when Paul is responding to and confronting the sins of this church in Ephesus, he, he addresses them with law. Notice verse 8 in 1 Timothy 1. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It re- law does what? It reveals sin, does it not? The law is absolutely essential in communicating the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, as a believer, we may be quick to immediately offer Christ and salvation to someone. And they haven't experienced yet the need for Christ and the Gospel. What helps a person to see that they need Christ? What helps a person to understand their sin and that they are a a judged sinner under God? Well, it's the law of God that does that. That's the purpose of the law. Just like Paul says, the law is not laid down for the just. The the, the law is not to to make people righteous. The law is not to uh, speaking to someone who thinks they are righteous. The law is for the lawless and disobedient. Those who know that they're like everybody else Sinners broken, who have broken God's law. And the law just reveals that. So we must teach people, if they're not aware of it already, the law of God so that they can understand their need for the Gospel. Paul communicates sound doctrine. He's talking about these lifestyles of sin that are, verse 10, the end of verse 10, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. You know, when you think about the nature of God and the nature of man and the truth of the purposes for which God made us, Sin is outside of sound doctrine. It, it doesn't, it's not walking in the truth to live in sin. And so there's a disconnect between who God is and, and, and what He calls us to do when someone is walking in this lifestyle of sin. So they need to be confronted with that sound doctrine. We call that a, a biblical worldview. Certainly the Gospel. So we could say it this way. We respond to their arguments and their lies by giving them the truth sound doctrine, a biblical worldview. I want to underscore this, and we'll look at this more specifically and carefully today. 
But the reason why, and we learn this from Romans 1, the reason why people engage in sexual sin like homosexuality is because at the root in their heart, they are struggling with idolatry. They're worshiping another god themselves. So they need to be confronted with the truth, the reality of the one true God. And then their pride and their sin needs to be confronted by giving them God's law, showing them who they are before the holy eyes of our Creator. But then also, if they will embrace those, their hopelessness and fear would need to be answered by giving them the Gospel of Christ. And it's critical that they know truth and law before the Gospel. Sometimes people will give another person the Gospel simply at an offer to make their life better. And that would be to misunderstand the reason for the Gospel. The Gospel often does not make earthly life better. Sometimes to embrace the Gospel makes the earthly life much worse because you're going against yourself. You're going against the world. You're going against the current now and you're seeking to follow Christ. The reason for the Gospel is so that they would be able to enjoy the mercy and grace of God and forgiveness for sin. And so, in order for them to understand that, truth and law must come first. Well, we began to look at these three arguments and tried to apply truth, law, and gospel, which each of these three arguments. Number one, I'm an atheist and love is love. You might hear a homosexual friend say something like that. Or, secondly, the, the Old Testament laws don't apply today. Or third, the Scripture never addresses homosexual orientation or monogamous, covenantal, loving, homosexual relationship. Let me just do a quick review of those first two arguments here, and then we'll dive into the third one today, and that's where we'll spend our time. I'm an atheist and love is love. Again, that is a classic collision of worldviews. And that gives us a clear opportunity for sharing the Gospel. And when, when, when they say, I'm an atheist, right? I don't know that there is a God. God doesn't exist. And so, however I define love, whatever love feels like to me, that's love. That's, that's love for me. Well, show them that whether they admit it or not, they know that creation reveals a Creator. We learn that in Romans 1, all through chapter 1, and certainly uh, verses 19 through 25 and 28. They know that there's a Creator. Creation reveals it. Show them that, secondly, their conscience witnesses to God's law and reveals the Creator. Romans 1, 32, also verses 2, or chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And show them then that not only does their conscience witness to the reality of God, but also that their conscience witnesses to God's law and convicts them of their sin and the violation of true love, which God's law establishes. So creation says God exists. God exists. Conscience says God exists. Conscience says God's law defines love, and we've all broken God's law and violated true love. Those, those are the truths, right? You can see biblical worldview, BWV, that's how I'm abbreviating it throughout the rest of the, the presentation this morning. But creation says God exists. Establish the existence of God. Conscience says God exists. Conscience says God's law defines love. And that's where you bring the law in, that their conscience witnesses to the truth of. Secondly, last week, again, we looked at this. The Old Testament laws don't apply today. right? You look at Leviticus 18.22 or Leviticus 20.13, and they say very clearly that, that God hates homosexuality. Well, well, they might say that, that the Old Testament no longer applies. Again, that's an argument that is an effort to undermine the assertions of God's law from texts like these. Well, what do we say to that? Well, we can give truth. We can say in the Mosaic Covenant, God clearly established moral, civil, ceremonial laws for His people. But, and here's, here's the key point, Jesus Christ fulfilled all those laws through His life, His atoning death, His resurrection. And then... Christ, our risen and ascended Lord, not only kept those laws, but He then reaffirmed moral laws as His commandments to be obeyed by His followers. Remember what Jesus said? Matthew 5.17 
don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Jesus didn't come to just do away with the law as if it didn't matter. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. And that's why Jesus, when being baptized, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus answered, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was filling up the law in behalf of His people to make them righteous. And so John baptized Him. So those moral laws which Christ reaffirmed are to be obeyed by His followers. Not for merit, right? We're not earning eternal life and salvation by keeping the law, but, to, but out of love because we've been given eternal life by His grace. The New Covenant, of course, continues the prohibitions of things like idolatry and blasphemy, adultery, homosexuality, stealing, lying, murder. So those laws are reaffirmed. There's a rule of thumb that you might say, and it's quite simplistic, but which laws should we continue to obey? Those which Jesus commanded throughout the New Testament by His authority. And like we know from Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. And He commanded us to teach them to observe all that He commanded us. So laws from the Old Testament that are continued in the New must be obeyed. Laws of Christ then provide conviction of sin as their conscience witnesses to their disobedience. So, so the truth issue is understanding the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which you can simply explain just like this. Or, or in addition to that, then that establishes the law of Christ and their conscience can witness to that and their need for salvation can be understood. Okay, now let's, let's go on to the third argument that might be addressed. And again, I want to give credit to where credit is due here. This argument is the main argument of, from the book called God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. And I'll draw things certainly from the response to that book that has been edited by R. Moeller Jr. This argument that says Scripture doesn't address homosexual orientation. right? It's not in the Scripture. Homosexual orientation is not in the Scripture is what they said. So, so it's, it's not an issue. And certainly, monogamous, covenantal, loving, homosexual relationships are not addressed in the Scripture. Instead, these texts address other issues like sexual excesses of lust, violation of patriarchy, pederasty, which we'll talk about briefly, and so on. So what this argument attempts to do is redirect those texts in Scripture and say they're about something else. They're not about homosexual relationships, so it's, a, it's, it's okay. Well, what do we say to that? Here's how, they, here's how they rethink Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at this briefly last week as well. They would say, first, procreation is not a fixed standard for marriage. They begin to redefine Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Procreation is not a fixed standard for marriage. Sexual complementarity is not required for one flesh union. The Genesis account focuses on permanent commitment. Well, and... A homosexual relationship can do that, right? No, it's not physically sexual complementary. Uh, it certainly can't procreate, but it doesn't matter. That's not what Genesis 1 and 2 are about. That's not, that's not what marriage is about. It's about permanent commitment. You can see where this argument is going. Uh, it's not good for a man to be alone, they would say, including men of homosexual orientation. God made me this way, and God doesn't want me to be alone, so then I must have to be with another man. And so that's part of the way they justify homosexual orientation and monogamous relationships from Genesis 1 and 2. How do we respond to that? Well, we learned from Genesis 1 when we went over it very clearly that, that, that multiplication is a mandate of marriage. God says that in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, multiply, and so on. And the only fitting helper for that is woman. No other helper was found fitting. God provided what was needed to accomplish 
that blessing. And God provided the woman. God looked, Adam looked through all that God had made, and there was nothing found fitting for this purpose and this blessing and this command, except for God made a woman and brought him to the man. And we've looked at these things. Now, let's look at the next text, and here's where we pick up with some new material this morning. Genesis chapter 19. We went through that a few weeks ago, and we, we notice how, how, it clearly, how it clearly establishes God's response to homosexuality. Here's how this argument goes. In Genesis 19, follow this carefully, the reason for the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was not same-sex behavior, but rather what? Inhospitality. And you could think about how that is a part of the text, how the men of Sodom didn't graciously welcome the, the angels into, into, the, into the city. Instead, it's inhospitality. Instead, it's violence or arrogance or oppression, even gang rape. But not, it's not talking about committed, consensual, same-sex marriage. How do we respond to that? Here's how we respond. Ezekiel 16, 48-50 uses the word abomination in the singular. This is where, when we understand that God's very words are inspired, it makes a difference. It makes all the difference in the world in describing and explaining the truth. The word abomination in the singular form describes the sin of Sodom. So Ezekiel calls the sin of Sodom an abomination in the singular. And that is the same word that Leviticus uses when describing homosexual relationships. Remember the Leviticus text that we talked about. And the only time Leviticus uses abomination in the singular, right? Same idea here. The only time it uses it in the singular is when referring to homosexual relationships in 1822 and 2013. The other four instances of abomination in Leviticus are all plural. So Ezekiel is doing what? When he calls the sin of Sodom an abomination, what is he referring to by that singular form of abomination? He's referring back to the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. Also, Jude 7 speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah's sexual immorality. He says there that it defied natural desire. That's what their sin is labeled as. Something that defies natural desire. Does that sound like inhospitality? No. Or, or, or that they pursued other flesh. Second Peter 2, 6-10 through points to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as sexual immorality rather than violence or inhospitality or something else. So while they're, there are definitely other sins present in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible makes it clear that unnatural sexual immorality and specifically homosexuality, was the reason God judged these cities. Do you see that? Ezekiel makes that clear by pointing to the same word that Leviticus uses to describe homosexuality, and certainly Jude and 2 Peter make that clear as well. Leviticus 18 and, and 20, those two verses that seem so clear, right? That, that God hates it when a man lies with another man or a woman with another woman. Well, here's how they would excuse this text away. It refers to laws which have been fulfilled in Christ. That's one argument, and we've already talked about that. But also they would say, what these two texts are about are a violation of gender roles that are familiar to a patriarchal society that viewed women as inferior to men. They're making a cultural construct here. They're looking back and saying the culture that Moses established there, it was all about making men great and making women inferior. So the reason homosexual relationships were not tolerated by Moses was because it would bring the passive male partner down to the status of a woman. Do you see how the whole text is redirected to an entirely different issue? And so then they would say, well, Leviticus 18 and 20 don't apply because that's not the kind of culture we live in. 
Well, how do we answer that? Here's the response. Remember, Leviticus is written by Moses, and he's, he's the one who wrote all of the first five books of the Bible. And what we have to say, first of all, is that Genesis 1 and 2 have nothing to do with establishing some sort of archaic, women-degrading culture of patriarchy. That's not what Genesis 1 and 2 is about. Genesis 1 and 2 establishes God's created order and standard for marriage. It's, remember, we, we talked about this. It's, it's what we could call pre-culture. It's above culture. It's universally binding for every culture. The created order of Genesis 1 and 2 is the standard and universal foundation and really the referent of every other command or prohibition regarding marriage in the Scriptures, including Leviticus 18 and 20. Leviticus 18 and 20 isn't about making sure that that women are, are kept low and men are lifted up. Leviticus 18 and 20 is about maintaining the created design for marriage that's in Genesis 1 and 2. So they don't, they don't prohibit a violation of patriarchy. They prohibit the action of abomination to God's holy character and law. Even simple homosexuality without any kind of nuance. And of course, like we've already said, when we say that Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law, it doesn't mean we throw them all to the wind. The laws of the Mosaic covenant that are reiterated in the New Testament should be viewed as being in keeping with the new covenant commands of Christ. Romans 1, 26 and 27. And we've gone through this several times throughout these last four weeks. Paul, the argument would be, and here's how Romans 1 would be redefined. Paul was opposed, they would say, Paul was opposed to excessive lust. He's not, he's not, not talking down about homosexuality per se. In fact, Paul did not know about same-sex orientation anyway. He didn't know about that. We've just discovered that recently. And therefore could only have been referring to certain kinds of excessively lustful homosexual acts. That's the redirection of that text. And when Paul says that these homosexual acts go against nature, remember how he says they were against nature, unnatural? This is because it did not conform again, same idea, the cultural, patriarchal gender roles. So, quote, homosexuality is only wrong when it's based on excessive lust and when it defies patriarchy, according to Romans, according to Paul. Again, it's a redirection of the issue, right? Well, how do we respond to that? We just open Romans 1 again and and show that excessively lustful homosexual acts and defying patriarchy are not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what he's condemning. Paul does not address excess, but simple, in fact, homosexual desires themselves. And we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing, but he he talks about even the desires themselves before there's any act taken as, as depraved calling them impure lusts and dishonorable passions, verse 26. Remember that? Paul is actually addressing homosexual orientation right there. What is homosexual orientation than the desires themselves? He's pointing to the desires of a person to engage in homosexual relationships. Those, he says, are dishonorable and impure. And when Paul says contrary to nature in verse 26 and 27, he doesn't mean contrary to culture, contrary to your culture that you're living in, which in, he's, he would say in, in Paul's case would violate patriarchy. Paul wrote fully informed by his Hebrew training. Guess what Paul is drawing upon in Romans 1? Genesis 1 and 2 again. In fact, Romans 1 contains many linguistic links to Genesis 1 and 2. And the sin Paul is describing is a departure again from the Genesis 1 and 2 created order for marriage and sexuality. See, that's why we talked about Genesis 1 and 2 early on. It's the standard. It's the, it's, it's the precedent of all the other texts that talk about this. Romans 1 describes the descending depravity 
of man from idolatry to dishonorable desires to unnatural sexual behaviors. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy 1.10 rethought. Paul does not refer to homosexuality in general, but to excessive lust and pederasty. Um, again, it's a redirection of the text. Pederasty, the same sexual relations between a man and a boy. So they would say this text has to do with sexual exploitation. Not same-sex orientation or what they would call monogamous, covenantal, loving, same-sex relationships. Again, what are these texts actually about? It's a redefinition. Okay, how do we answer that? Again, we've talked about this. Paul carefully uses two terms in those texts. One describing the active partner, the other describing the passive partner in a homosexual encounter. The term for the active partner is used in both verses, 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. The, the term for the passive partner is used only in 1 Corinthians 6. And if you take these texts together, they render an unambiguous judgment on these two terms. Both are sinful regardless of the varieties that may be talked about. Paul's not referring to excessive lust and pederasty by these terms. In fact, the term Paul uses for the active partner in both texts, notice this, nowhere else appears in Greek literature until Paul coins the term there. Paul rather coins these terms deriving them from the Greek translation of Leviticus 20, verse 13. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. It all fits together. Genesis 1 and 2 establishes the precedent. Makes the, makes the model clear that God designed. Leviticus presses it even for, forward and, and speaks of the, the judgment that is deserved. And Paul, in his epistles, Apply it to the New Testament culture as well. Paul's sexual ethic is not based on the Greco-Roman culture. It's not about patriarchy being violated. Nothing like that. It's based on the Hebrew tradition whose Scriptures were clearly opposed to all forms of homosexual behavior. Paul bases his argument on creation theology. That's, that's where Paul got his training. Now, we've been through a lot there, and I don't expect you to remember all that. I'm basically just exposing you to it. There, is some, there are some really twisted arguments that are used to justify these sins. And so, I throw that out for, there for you because if, if you do come across someone that you're sharing the Gospel with, and you're like, they, they've got some really good arguments. I don't know how to deal with it. Well, dig deeply. There's resources out there, that, and we can help each other, that, help each other with these things. But notice, here, here's the big picture. Why are, they, why are people twisting the Scriptures like this? How do they do this? Why do they do this? The heart of the matter is, with all of these textual twistings, there's a desire to subject the Scripture to personal experience. And make an exchange. Remember Romans 1? They exchanged and worshipped and served what? The creature instead of the Creator. There's an exchange. They twist the Scripture to, to make it meet their personal experience, and then they, by that, make a God of their own image. So we must respond. That's why I say we must respond by affirming the authority of Scripture. That's our biblical worldview. Scripture is truth. And the glory of God over human idolatry. There's only one true God and the Scripture reveals Him. And my experience can't change any of that. Here's another book that I want to recommend to you about this. Excellent book. And if you, if you would go and read this book, it would be so helpful to equip you to, to witness to others struggling with this sin. It's called Love into Light by Peter Hubbard. And he says this, Attractions... For the homosexual person, attractions form the basis of the authentic self. And through this self-defined identity, all of life is interpreted. 
truth and morality are important, but secondary. And that's why we have to present the truth because we have to show them that the, that the biblical worldview, truth, who God is, what the Bible is, who man is, what is salvation, those things are, pri- those are primary, not secondary. For them, sexual attractions and identity based on those sexual attractions are primary. The Word of God typically is not overtly rejected, just reinterpreted in the light of experience. The heart critiques the Scriptures. You see that? Rather than the Scriptures critiquing the heart. Passages that contradict the thoughts and intentions of the heart must be reinterpreted or ignored. Experience reigns. So again, when when someone would put forward these arguments and twist the Scriptures to accommodate their sin and and their attractions that they feel inside, we have to begin to teach them about the nature and the authority of Scripture. That we must submit ourselves to Scripture. Scripture must tell us who we are. And and assert the glory of God over a created God, a recreated God in our image. Which will bring us then to the law rightly interpreted, which then reveals sin and the need for Christ. It's important that this, this order is played out. But then what about the Gospel of Christ? And that's where I'm going with the rest of this time. Is I, want to, I want to show you the truths of the Gospel that will, that will meet the need of someone who is enslaved to sin such as homosexuality. We present the truths of a biblical worldview and God's law, remember, because sinners do not see their need for the true Gospel and the true Christ if they don't see their sin, right? And its consequences. Doesn't that make sense? Why else, why else would you need the Gospel unless you're a sinner who needs the mercy of God? So there's an order to this as you communicate truth. that They won't see their need and, it's, and their sin and its judgment until they understand and submit to God's law in their heart. And they won't understand and submit to God's law in their heart until they see their Creator as He is. And we already know from Romans 1 that the beginning of this is the exchange of the Creator and the embracing of idolatry. And you can see from those three things, I mean, who who can do that for another person? You can only speak the truth in love and ask God to make these exchanges in their heart. But again, to see their Creator as He is, and this is why the sinner in his natural state runs from the law and runs from truth, to see their Creator as He is and understand and submit to God's law, it's, it's shameful, right? It's devastating. It's, it's crushing to the sinner. So you run from it. Including a homosexual. Any sinner though. So to abandon their idolatry and embrace, embrace their Creator is to admit that everything the Bible says about sinners like us is absolutely true. That's, that's crushing. But that's where then the Gospel comes in to rescue. What I want to do for a few moments is I kind of want to paint a picture for you in your mind to kind of take you on a thought journey. There are three powerful entities which the Bible refers to that keep the homosexual enslaved to his or her sin. And any sinner. These three entities keep them, try to keep them refusing to worship God, refusing to submit to His law, refusing to embrace the Gospel and the truth. What are they? The flesh. What's the flesh? Paul talks about the flesh. The flesh is the fallen sinful humanness. Fallen sinful humanness, which we all have, which includes sinful feelings, sinful desires of the body and the mind. But also, not just the flesh, there's the world. The world, a system of thinking and living which lures us, doesn't it? It pulls on the sinner and and tries to dictate to our flesh which paths of sinful desires 
and ungodliness to follow. And then even in addition to that, the devil, right? The world, the flesh, the devil. The devil who plays the tune that the world dances to and holds the power over the leaders of the system like a puppeteer holds a marionette. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. He says that the prince of the, of the power of the air is at work in the sons of disobedience. And these three powers of evil, the world, the flesh, the devil, work in, every, in the life of every sinner. Sometimes in the past of an open homosexual, he or she must have begun to recognize their feelings. Think about this with me. Let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment, and then we'll talk about some gospel. They must have begun at some point to recognize their feelings and desires as being different than most of the people around them. Could you imagine that startling reality? Consider their struggle with what to do with those feelings and desires and how to understand them and live with them. Consider the path that they walked before they came out, as we say. Growing up here, she certainly experienced confusion, fear, not like the people around me. Shame, not knowing how to change their feelings or, or desires and not, not always wanting even to change them and that being disturbing to them. Maybe their homosexual desires came on slowly and subtly or maybe more abruptly and surprisingly or even after a personal and sometimes very disturbing personal event. And they kept those feelings and thoughts hidden for a long time, wrestling with them in their heart. Can you imagine? Maybe even they grew up in a nominal Christian family. Or at least a family that promoted the moral American profile. You understand? And maybe at the point they... Maybe at, at the maybe they went to church at some point and they heard they heard at their church that God hates gays and that the sin of homosexuality has reserved for itself the hottest part of hell. Maybe they heard the pastor shout at the audience with an arrogant sneer, "God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve." How often have you heard something like that? And so they kept their feelings hidden. They tried to conform to what was expected of them by mom or dad, siblings, friends, church leaders, but it didn't help. And all of those expectations didn't and couldn't change them. And as they matured, their fears changed to anger. And their shame changed to arrogance. And their silence changed to active, though secret, pursuits to fulfill their desires. And as they ventured more and more out into the world, they heard new voices in the world that affirmed them and their desires. And those voices told them that if they feel a certain way and enjoy certain behaviors, that that is who they are. That's their identity. And for the first time, they experienced a sense of what they interpreted as freedom and true love. For the first time, they felt like someone understood them and their feelings and desires and told them that they're beautiful just the way they are and should wholeheartedly pursue who they are. And so they came out, leaving their childhood and all of its frustration and suppression behind them. But when they looked back into that closet, they remembered the confusion and felt the fear and shame again that plagued them for so many years. And that was the last place to which they wanted to return. Could you imagine? And so on the basis of the experience of their own flesh and the compelling voices of the world influenced by the deceiver, they decided that the God they were told about at home and church that shouted at them and shamed them and would soon damn them, that He did not exist. Seems like an easy step to take in that position. And instead, they constructed in their mind and heart a worldview that fit comfortably with all of their feelings and desires and affirmed them in their sense of self-identity. 
They willingly exchanged the truth about God for a lie and were not grateful to the God who created them. They embraced idolatry and worshipped and served the creature themselves instead of their Creator. They listened to their own sinful desires to tell them who they are. To dictate to them their identity instead of listening to the God who made them in His own image. And this path of life, if not departed from by the grace of God, is a dissatisfying, dishonorable, depraved, destructive path to death. Think what you have to work against when you communicate the Gospel to someone like that. You see? And, I, and I'm sure I didn't even scratch the surface. So, so how do we handle such things? It's a work of God. So much has to be undone and rethought, right? Embraced by the grace of God. They, they do need a pre-gospel, right? They must, we must confront their idolatry. Romans 1 makes that clear. That's the beginning of it all. They've made a God in their own image themselves. Philippians 3.19, Paul talks about those who make their desires, their belly, their own God. Colossians 3, 5-7 talks about sexual perversions and calls them idolatry. But they also must understand that yeah, we need to explain to them the inherited depravity. How did they get where they are? Romans 5, 12-21, they inherited something broken. The human sinful nature. Show them their sin, yes. Warn them of the consequences of their sin. But they need to know that the root cause is the same sinful nature that all of us are born with. They need to hear all that is spoken to them, though not by shooting from the hip with arrogant condescension, but from one human being made in God's image to another. Spoken over an open Bible with the boldness and clarity and love of Christ. They need to know that they cannot trust their feelings and desires, or what the voice of the world tells them when it pretends to tell them who they are. They must be compelled instead to trust and listen to the voice of the Creator to tell them who they are. They need to hear that their desires and behaviors have violated God's holy law and purposes for them as an image bearer of God. Not just their homosexual sin, but all their sin. They need to hear that if they do not turn, like it says here, that they will be judged. But, more than that, in addition to that, beyond that, they need to hear the Gospel. What Gospel do they need to hear? They need to hear that Christ lived and died and rose and reigns and returns and and Christ provides things for His people that will answer their needs Every need that the homosexual person has, everything that they've struggled with, everything that they've wondered about growing up can be answered in the truth, in the Gospel. They can have righteousness and atonement. That's going to be very important. Because part of what they deal with, any sinner deals with, we deal with in here, is that when we hear God's law and we hear the, the expectations that people have for us, it, it, we can't measure up. We can't measure up to God's expectations and the people around us. And so we feel a sense of shame and guilt and sometimes anger. And what they need to hear is what every needed sinner needs to hear is that there is righteousness and atonement from Christ. They can have God's righteousness. He can clothe their sin in His righteousness. Romans 3, 20 and 20 through 26 talks about the righteousness of God being revealed to be received by faith. That Christ will atone for their sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on their behalf so that they would be made the righteousness of God in Him. These are the verses they need to hear and see. 1 Peter 2.24 By His wounds we are healed. 3.18 The righteous for the unrighteous that we might be brought to God. They need to hear that they, they can be recreated. That's part of the wonder of the Gospel. It's recreation. That old sinful nature with all of its depraved feelings and desires can be recreated. Isn't that tremendous news? You don't have to stay the way you are. 1 Corinthians 5.17, what does it say? If any man be in Christ, he's what? New creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Ephesians 4, 20-24 talk about that as well. This is not the way you've learned Christ if you've been found in Him. He is going to recreate you, Paul talks about. Recreate you after the image of God. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 talk about this as well, where it says you're going to be renewed after the image of the One who created you. Just think about the weight that can be lifted in thinking If you will come to Christ, you will be recreated. All of these struggles you deal with will eventually be gone. What a glorious reality. You get a new nature and a new heart. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. You walk them through that and you show them that they can die with Christ. That old man can die with Christ and all that past life can be buried and you can be raised and have literally a new life in the Spirit with desires for God. God can take your desires that have frustrated you and confused you and that you've given over to and defined your life by now. You can begin to hate those and love what God loves. You can have a new identity. See, that, that's part of the battle of the homosexual agenda is people in the world tell them this and they believe it and the evil one wants them that Your desires and your affections, that's who you are. That's part of the battle of this for the church in the world. What person goes around with the sin of theft or lying or whatever and says, this is who I am. This is my identity. Don't change me. See, with the sexual perversions of our culture, Our culture has forced this upon them and and their own flesh has forced it upon themselves that these are my desires. This is who I am. That is the most enslaving, disastrous thought that they could think. I don't want my desires and my feelings to define who I am. I want God to tell me who I am. That's what they need to know. God can tell you who you are. You can have a brand new identity. He tells you in Ephesians 1, 3-14, you are chosen. If you come to Christ, you are chosen. You are forgiven. You are loved. You have an inheritance coming. God, You tell me who I am. You're my Creator. Colossians 3, 1-4 says it so well. If you've been risen with Christ, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You are dead to this earth and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is the gospel to someone who, who thinks that they are, their identity is determined by their desires and feelings and affections. You get a new family. Yes, you may be rejected by some, but you get a brand new family. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16 says that you're part of the household of God when you come to Christ. You have a new purpose now. Ephesians 2.10 says that that God has planned for you to walk in this path of good works for His glory. And He reveals them to us. You begin to live, 1 Corinthians 10.31, for the glory of God, receiving God's glory, enjoying God's glory, reflecting it in the world. And there's a brand new future. You know what? Maybe maybe for, for someone struggling with homosexuality or other sexual sins, that this life, this earthly life, they will never entirely be rid of some of those old desires and feelings. Maybe not, but you know what? There is coming a day when they will be. They'll have a brand new body. You can give them that hope. You're not going to be in this broken, fallen being forever. 
When Jesus comes, Philippians 3, 20-21, He will give us a body like His glorious body. 1 John 3, 1-3, when we see Him, what? We will be like Him. We will see Him just as He is. This is the Gospel. Did you know the Gospel was so deep and so wide and so broad? You've got to know this stuff because this is how you, you draw someone to come to Christ with His words. Get these verses down. Know them. And then when you have, when God opens an opportunity, and I heard about a great one already last week, I was rejoicing. You need this. God will bring you someone like this who's struggling, and you'll be able to say, No, let me show you truth. This is who God is. This is who the world is. This is, this is what the Word of God is. This is who you are. This is God's law. And here's the hope of the gospel. God will give you a new nature and a new heart, a new identity, a new family, a new purpose, and a new future. That is good news. And here's what it comes down to, too. It's, it's the same gospel no matter what sinner you're talking to. Right? It's the same gospel. And it saves. And so, we, we, we hold out these truths to them. In order for the sinner to come to the place where they know that that's really good news, and that's what they want. They must be willing to abandon their idolatry, to say no to it, to submit themselves to God's law, to be willing to rest in God's provisions of salvation, to rescue them only through the person and work of Christ. So we pray for them. Because you can't make a person want this, right? You pray for them. You bring them before the throne of grace and you, you labor to speak the truth, but you hold them up before the throne of grace. And we lovingly and humbly serve them. Remember something. No matter what kind of sin a person is involved with, they are still a creature made in the image of God just like you and I. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, our last session together. We're going to talk about how we can walk in humility when we talk about these sins. I mean real humility. And we need to see sins rightly before God's eyes not the way our culture would define them, or even our Christian culture. We pray for them, we love them, we humbly serve them, and we compel them with the urgency and compassion of Christ to come. And you know what? God saves people. He does. In fact, I want to, I'll just go ahead and move to this slide right now. There is a book, another book I recommend to you, like I said already, Love into Light, Peter Hubble. He'll tell stories in there too about people who have, who have been saved. But there is a uh, well-spoken, a well-known individual, Rosaria Butterfield. She was a very liberal professor, uh, a brilliant woman, and she was a lesbian. And she got saved. And she tells the story of how she got saved and, and how God used someone in her life to, to lead her into the truth of the Gospel. And I would encourage that you to read that book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Excellent book there as well. These will help us. These will help us to understand what we need to say and how we need to pray and how the Lord may use us to reach someone for Christ. But remember, as we close, two passages again here very quickly. Roman, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5, 3 through 5. What are we doing? We are destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. We have to confront their errant worldview with a biblical worldview. That is so important. And we've talked some about that. But then also, remember, give the law. It is good. It reveals sin. But also, give the Gospel. Just like Paul does. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, insolent opponent. I received mercy. I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I received mercy that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. 
the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love how Paul says this, and I'm going to keep reminding you of it. You can look at that sinner in the face and say, if God saved me, then what? He can save you. That's, that's how you share the Gospel with them. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't received this Gospel yet. You need it. You need God to tell you who you are. You need to come to Christ. If you have not yet, you need to see your sin and His judgment just as God says it. And Christ will provide all that you need in salvation if you will trust in Him. Righteousness. Atonement. He will recreate you. He will give you new desires. He will, he will give you new purpose and, and a future. It will be a joyful thing for you. God is so good. He loves to save. And He is glorious in His salvation. Let's stand together and we'll, we'll pray this morning. Our Father, we, we have attempted, however feebly, to give some perspective of truth and law and Gospel. Your Word is sufficient. Your glory is, is astounding. It, compared to the false gods, oh, the false gods of the nations cannot see, cannot speak, cannot hear. You reign. Father, may we point people to the one true God and the holiness of Your law and the glory of Your salvation. Father, teach us how to speak it in truth, just like Paul prayed with boldness, clarity as we ought to. We ask You to bring people to us that we may show them Your Word and speak Your truth in love and serve them humbly. Father, change our hearts that we may be ready both with our lives and our doctrine and our understanding. And may You be glorified We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.